0: So thank you for our moms, each mom that's here, uh, that's represented, each one of us whose mom isn't here. Some of us lost moms even in this last year. Um, I pray that you'd come for hearts and that. I pray for uh, the women in our congregation that long to be a mom, and that, that hasn't happened at this point. And we know that can be a huge struggle. I pray that you'd speak to their hearts this morning. I pray that you'd shape us and mold us, each one of us. I, I know you've got a word for us, uh, even those of us who are not moms, never going to be moms. And uh, God, I pray that you would speak into our hearts from your word. We know that you supernaturally can do that. I pray by the power of your spirit uh, with your word that we know you promise does not return void, that you would speak into our hearts right now and and, uh, speak to us in ways that we might not have ever even guessed. Maybe we've seen this passage a hundred times, but that you would just bring us into it and speak through it to us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this week as I was uh, reflecting on preaching on another Mother's Day, this is the 10th Mother's Day, that I've preached at Southbridge, which is funny to me. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I'm not a mom. (laughs) And that's probably never happening. And so it's funny to me to think about the fact how many times I've taught about motherhood or made these applications specific to motherhood. And so I just thought I'd let you in a little bit on how I even do that. Um, Obviously, every week when I prepare a sermon, I study the passage and just ask the Lord to give me what word he has for our congregation as a whole. Uh, but when it's a specific audience like that, that I really have no clue, I, I mean, i see my wife do it, I've seen my mom do it, but I have no clue what it's like. And I know it's different for a dad than it is for a mom. And so I've reached out to moms throughout the years, uh, the 10 years that we've been here. I remember the very first year, it was like panic mode, like, oh no, Mother's Day's coming. What do I say on that? And uh, older moms, younger moms, moms with adult kids, moms with babies, one baby, multiple babies, toddlers, all the different stages, I've asked them questions. And one thing has become clear, it can be awesome and is rewarding at times, but oftentimes when you're in it, it seems very difficult. And so I get stories from moms about everything that you can imagine. Sometimes it's silly stuff. Like I spend most of my day trying to keep kids from eating dog food out of the dog food dish. I've literally been told that before. Or drinking out of, like doing stuff that normal humans don't do. Why do we do, when we're little humans, why do we do this, like sucking on their toes and like just all kinds of stuff. And so moms spend a lot of their time refereeing fights between siblings and trying to stop that stuff. And, and there's just stuff that happens and it, and it piles up and becomes difficult. And sometimes there's tragic stories I remember one adult mom told me when her firstborn son, uh, when he was born, had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And he made it, but it was like a sign of the difficulty that was coming in his life. And some people have lost babies. And some people have, like Lisa said, there's the joys and then there's the struggles and there's special needs and there's different things. Each kid is unique, each mom has a unique story. Uh, but one thing's clear it's all tough. And sometimes it's not those big stories, like the umbilical cord or losing a baby or some rush to the ER. Sometimes it's just that little stuff that piles up. And it's different, dads. You you gotta understand, it's so different. My wife and I were talking this week about the first time, we have four kids. Our first baby, when we had her, she, even as a baby, infant, treated me different than she treated mom. And I remember the first time I stayed home with her, I was supposed to feed her. I think the schedule was 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And my wife was gonna be gone during that time period. She came back sometime after 2 o'clock and I totally skipped the two o'clock feeding. Like, I just didn't even think, I wasn't trying to be a bad dad. I just didn't do it. And the baby, she didn't say anything. She didn't cry. As soon as mom walks in the door, she starts bawling. And my wife looks at this bottle that's half d- gone that's sitting on the countertop in the kitchen. says, Is that from the, ele- uh, the two o'clock feeding? I said, That's the 11 o'clock. I forgot there was a two o'clock feeding. So I don't know if even as an infant she thought, He doesn't know what he's doing. Like, I don't know but she's gracious with me, not so gracious with mom. And I was watching last week, we were spending some time together and they were like little chicks just picking at her, like just constantly picking, picking, picking. Mom, can you do this? Mom, what about this? What, why is the sky blue? She won't stop licking me. This one hit me, but she did it first and it's worse. And they started it. Blah, 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 It's just like all this stuff. Got an amen <laughs> from a mom. And sometimes it's like, it's not even that one big thing. It's all that little stuff where you get to the point where it feels like, if there's just one more thing, it's going to push me over the edge. And so moms, I want you to know that we know that. And today we're going to look at a passage of scripture. We talk about Jesus being stronger than the storms of life. And I know that moms are not strangers to the storms of life. And sometimes it's big stuff like losing a baby or the rush to the ER or some terrible thing that happens that you didn't expect. And sometimes it's just all that little stuff that piles up. And some moms today, we're not going to look at like I've done in some years in the past, a specific mom in in Scripture or Proverbs 31 or different things along those lines. But I don't think you're going to have any trouble making application from today's message. And in fact, we all go through the storms of life. And so for some of us, it's our kids, and it's motherhood, and it's all the little stuff that piles up. And sometimes it's a big event. Sometimes it's marriage and sometimes it's when the, the marriage isn't going well and, and you feel like that you can't fix it and you can't make it happen. You can't make the other person do what you want them to do and that's one of the storms of life. It's the difficulties, it's the trials of life. And sometimes it's the not being married that becomes the difficulty, the trial of life. Sometimes it's not the kids, it's that you can't have kids that's the difficulty. Sometimes it's your health, sometimes it's your loss of health, sometimes it's your job, sometimes it's your loss of job. The reality is there's no such thing as a sea that doesn't have storms on it and there's no such thing as a life that doesn't have difficulty. And so today, I just want to simply declare to you, moms and the rest of us, that Jesus is stronger than the storms of life. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, talking about Jesus being stronger than the storms of life. But before we even get to the storm, you have to understand this is the end of the day. And Jesus had one of those days that's like one of those days. You know, I know moms know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about? One of, it's just one of those days where it's like you're just, it's a victory if you could just put your head on a pillow. Like you just go to sleep. I've laid down in bed before with my wife and said, we made it. <laughs> like it's, it's over. That's a success that day. Doesn't matter what happened from the time you got up to the time you're going to sleep, the fact that you're going to sleep and you're still alive feels like we did it. That's the kind of day Jesus has had. And you can back up into chapter three and see when it started. It started off, he was helping a guy. He was healing a demon-possessed guy, casting a demon out of him, which who could get mad at that? But some religious authorities accuse him of doing it by the power of Satan. So his day starts off with, he does, he's even getting criticized for doing something that no one could deny was a good thing. He's being criticized saying that you're doing it, you're empowered by Satan to do this. And so that's how his day starts. It goes from that, if you read the passage, to a domestic dispute that he has with his family, with his mom. Because we all know there's times when you and mom don't get along. Every mom, that's true. Even with Jesus and his mom. his brothers are there. And his brothers don't believe that he's the son of God who's come to take away their sins. At this point, and they believe it after he raises from the dead, but at this point, they think they're actually saving Jesus from himself. And so Jesus goes from being accused in the morning to being empowered by Satan, to having a domestic dispute with his own family, to then going on and teaching these large crowds, and crowds keep coming, and, and there's a bunch of them, and they just don't get it. And so he has to explain himself, and then explain himself again, and then explain it to his disciples, a special explanation. Moms, can you identify do you ever feel like you're just talking to hear yourself talk? I know that you, moms, you probably never do this. Sometimes I blow it as a parent, and I blew it the other day. Uh, it was after church, actually, ironically. You know, you preach a message and you blow it. It's like, what a hypocrite. Uh, I came home. We were having lunch together as a family, and our kids, just without giving you all the details, weren't doing what I expect them to do when we eat a meal, the things that we've taught them uh, to do. And so I said, yeah, it's not, yeah, we've never done this before, have we? That's what I started saying. Sarcasm's not a good way to teach your kids, just so you know. It's only like the thousandth time we've gone to sit down together to have a meal, and you're still not doing it right. And so if you've ever experienced that, that's that's the kind of day Jesus is having. And when he's done teaching, he was teaching from a boat. He's on water. That's his acoustical setup for these large crowds. He doesn't even get out of the boat. He says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. And that's where we join him. So the storm hasn't even happened. He's already having one of those days. And look what it says in Mark chapter 4, and verse 35. That day, one of those days... When evening came, finally, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took along—they took him along just as he was in the boat. So he never even left the boat. He didn't go wash his face. He didn't go mingle with the crowd. He taught the lessons. They weren't getting it. He explained it. They weren't getting it. He gave another analogy. They weren't getting it. Another illustration. They weren't getting it. He explained it to his disciples. They don't really get it. He says, all right, let's go to the other side. They take off. There were other boats with them. Oftentimes we don't realize that. There was more than one boat here. Verse 37 A furious squall. The language there is a hurricane. Matthew uses language like an earthquake on the water. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping. Here we get a picture of Jesus' humanity. He's not fake sleeping here. Jesus is really sleeping, he's that exhausted. He's asleep while this storm is happening. He's on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. In my children's Bible at home, it says, Shh, wind, shh, waves. Not the most academic translation, but it gets the idea across. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And so now we have a picture of his divinity. He's not just human, sleeping. He was fully human. But he's also God. Even the wind and the waves obey him. The same words that spoke water and earth into existence have just controlled the water and the wind. Verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Even after I've done this, do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. They asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so here we have the story of Jesus calming the storm. It's a miracle. Every miracle of Jesus is Jesus overcoming a difficulty in somebody's life. Even from his first miracle, when there's a wedding and he turns water into wine, he's caring about such a minute detail. And, and somebody's, their reputation, them being humbled before their friends, he cares about this little detail in this wedding ceremony all the way to the point when he goes to the cross and absorbs the wrath of his father on the cross. And he deals with our greatest enemy, Sin and Satan. And he shows that he's stronger when he rises from the dead. And so he defeats sin. What is sin? Sin is not just that we make a mistake. Sin is that we Are rebelling against God, that we're doing our own thing. And so somebody has to pay for it. And so Jesus pays for it. And that's a miracle. And then you look at this miracle and you think, well, he's just demonstrating he's got power over nature. It's more than that in this passage. And so if you've heard it taught that way, you haven't gotten the whole story of what's happening here. The language of this passage, specifically verse 39, if you have your Bibles, you can look back at verse 39. The language of verse 39 points us to the fact this is about more than him just being the creator, more than him just having authority over wind and over waves. In fact, underlying verse 39 is in chapter 3, verse 27. I don't know if you remember that, but I preached a message generally called Jesus is Stronger when we are in this passage. And it talks about Jesus, he's given a parable, Jesus tying up a strong man. It says this, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house, the strong man is Satan, and carry off his possessions unless he first ties the strong man up. Then he can rob his house. The strong man in the passage is Satan. His house is his rule and reign. He's the God of this earth, the God of this air. And what Jesus has been doing, in this passage of Scripture, he's just cast out a demon. He's releasing people from oppression. He's releasing people. See, Satan is the father of lies. So it's like Lecrae says. Lecrae says that we've been in deception since conception. He's a poet. If you want to Google him, you can find him. You'll see some of his poetry. We're all deceived. We all live in darkness. And what Jesus does as the light of the world is he comes in and he shines light into that darkness and he gives us a path into freedom. But he has to defeat our greatest enemy. He has to defeat our greatest fears, the very thing that hinders us from faith. And that's what he's doing in chapter 3, verse 27. And here we get a practical, not just him talking about it, not just sharing a parable about it, but him showing them and actually doing it in their very lives. And another thing for you to know about this is that you've got to understand the Jewish mindset at this time is that the sea was the greatest enemy of humankind. And so you think about it in the Bible. Those of you who know some of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 1, What does God, in order to create the earth, in order to have dry land on the earth, he separates the sea, the water. When he's going to punish people because of their sin, Genesis chapter 6, everybody's sinful. He sends a flood, that's his wrath on the earth, and it's used what? The water. And so how do people view the water? When God wants to demonstrate his power to save his people, he parts the Red Sea. You start seeing this theme all throughout the Old Testament, so you get to the place where the disciples are at, and the readers of Mark, who are the persecuted church at this time, And what's happening here is they're getting a picture of Jesus having authority and power over their greatest enemy and their greatest fear. In fact, the very word that's used when Jesus says quiet in verse 39 is the exact same word that he used in Mark chapter 1 in verse 25 when he was telling a demon-possessed guy to be quiet. Hush. I've got control of this. What Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples when he calms the wind and he calms the waves is I've got authority over your greatest enemy and your greatest fears. So Jesus is stronger than the storms. Any storm in your life is what he's teaching, which implication is we can trust him with everything. We can trust him in anything. So Jesus is stronger than the storms of life. But with that in mind, knowing this is their greatest fear and their greatest enemy, try and imagine what it was like to be in that boat that day, to be one of those disciples. At least seven of them, we know, were professional fishermen. They've heard Jesus teaching. What do you think at that point when Jesus is like, I'm done teaching. He's like, close up the textbooks. The lesson's over with. They don't realize the lesson's about to start. Because Sometimes we come and we take notes and we listen to a sermon or whatever and we think, all right, I believe that and I got that and that story. That was tough to believe. I'm in on that one. And we leave. It really starts when you get out there and you have to live this stuff out. And so what Jesus is doing now, it seems like when he goes to sleep, he's done. No. What did he say? He was telling the one parable about the farmer. Sows the seed. Let's it sit on their hearts. And what kind of heart do they have? We don't know. Is it going to be a good heart? Is it a hard heart? We saw these different hearts in the last passage. But what the farmer does, he goes to sleep. He's giving us a picture of the very thing that he just taught. And now it's going to be, do you guys really believe this? The stuff that I was just teaching, you can affirm it in your mind, but do you really believe it when you have to live it out, when the storms of life actually come to you? And so Jesus gives them a command. Let's go to the other side. So they should know they're going to make it to the other side. Because when Jesus commands something, it's going to happen. And so he says, let's go to the other side. But when they left, seven of them are fishermen. If they knew there was going to be a storm, they wouldn't leave. Of course they wouldn't leave. Just experience would tell them that. But the storm's coming. Jesus is the only one on the boat that knows the storm's coming. He knows everything about them. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing. Not a hair falls out of your head without him knowing. He knows your respiratory rate at this very moment and theirs. And so the boat takes off. It's evening, We get all these details. It's obvious there's an eyewitness. It's probably Peter that tells this to Mark. Jesus didn't even leave the boat, just as he is, verse 36. He goes with them right after teaching. And then the sun's starting to set. Stars are starting to come out. The water's probably marble smooth. These boats are not huge boats. It's not like some yacht or cruise ship that they're on. Uh, They're probably somewhere 15 to 25 feet long. would have about 15 passengers that would be able to go into one of these boats. They've found them in archaeological digs from this time period. It had two oars on each side, so it would be powered by about four guys. So not everyone needed to do work. And certainly Jesus says, well, I'm going to leave it to the guys who know the sea the best. So I'm going to go in the back, and he lays down in the stern. There's one cushion in the boat. He goes to the place of honor for an honored guest. He lays down. He goes to sleep. Sea of Galilee is more like a lake, actually. It's about 13 miles across. Think about how dark it is. They're probably at a point where you can't see land on either side. Maybe thinking about that day's teaching. There's other boats. People who study the weather say that the geography of this area is set up where fierce storms can come suddenly, like out of nowhere. And so on the eastern side, there's some pretty steep hills. And those hills, there's some dips, some valleys that go through there where the, the wind and the air fronts can come through. And so there's warm, warm air around the water. But oftentimes, the cold air can come over those mountains, over those hills pretty quickly, and especially through those gaps. And when they collide with one another, it can be hurricane-like conditions all of the sudden. And so you just imagine being out there on this boat, glassy, smooth water. You're sailing along. You're thinking about the day. You're probably tired too. Jesus is sleeping. And then wham, like hurricane. Or Matthew says there's an earthquake on the water. Ten-foot waves start crashing on the boat. Imagine what's happening here. People, there's other boats too but you can't see them. You can hear people screaming. You've got these fishermen. They're bailing water out of this boat. The storm comes as a surprise, which is typically how it happens in our lives, isn't it? Like good things might be going on. You don't, it's not typical that you do know, Bad stuff's going to happen on Wednesday. Like it just comes. It comes into their life. They're trying to deal with it. You know it's bad because there's seven fishermen and they're asking for help. Fisher men, and they're asking for help. Guys, I don't know if you remember what it was like before we had GPS, but no one asked for directions, right? Like, guys, now it's impossible, by the way, to stop and ask for directions. These guys are in such a desperate situation, they're asking Jesus for help. If you read the different accounts of this in Matthew and in Luke, you could say, well, there must be a discrepancy here. The Bible's not accurate because in Mark, it says that they, they look up to the front of the boat and they say, teacher. And then if you read Matthew's account, Matthew says that they call him Lord. And if you read Luke's account, Luke's account says, oh, master, master. And so you might think, well, which one is it? And you've got to remember, this is real life. This is not a TV sitcom where they're, writing, they're reading their script to Jesus. I'm supposed to call him Lord now. I'm supposed to call him teacher. They're probably saying all of those things simultaneously. It's chaos, And so one's yelling master, one's yelling Lord, one's yelling teacher, and they're looking up, and what do they see? He's sleeping. Now, when I read this passage this week, I've shared with the church uh, over the last couple weeks that we have four kids. Every one of them's come home. I've slept through the early, you know, them waking up in the middle of the night and all stuff. My wife thinks that I'm faking it. She thinks I'm just being a jerk in those moments. I'm just a heavy sleeper. There are not a lot of areas in my life where I'm like Jesus. (laughs) But I read this one and thought, that is my man. He's sleeping through the storm. He's not fake sleeping, like one eye open, seeing what they're going to do. He's really asleep. And then I thought to myself, but there's like 10-foot waves crashing on this boat. He's got to be soaked. Now, if you dump a bucket of water on me, I'm waking up. Jesus is sleeping through that. And what Mark tells us, he lets us see what's happening in the hearts in the midst of that chaos, where they're yelling, teacher, master, Lord, water's crashing on him. They say, look at what Mark says happens. He said, don't you care? Like, this is the most important thing in our lives at this moment. And you're asleep. Which is oftentimes how it feels in the middle of our storms, isn't it? He's indifferent. God's not doing what I want him to do. He's not, showing, he's not answering my prayer. Why don't you just fix this? Why don't you just, we're like kids going to their mom. Stop and why and this and he started it and blah, blah, blah. And when he's not doing what we want him to do, We ask questions like, why me? Why this? Why now? And every life experiences this, by the way. If you've been there, you're not alone. But I'm going to tell you a truth today. You might not need it today, you will need this truth. Jesus' care is greater than our chaos. Jesus' care for us is greater than the chaos that comes into our lives. You might not need that truth today. Moms, you, today might be a great day. Like somebody will take you to lunch and maybe they'll you know, tell you, give you a nice card and they're going to tell you how awesome you are as a mom. It's going to be a wonderful day. But let me tell you something. When you're in the car with your precious little baby on your way to the ER and you can't fix the problem, you need to know Jesus' care is greater than your chaos. Some of you, you might be sitting there at church today and you're holding hands with your spouse or thinking about the person you're going to ask today later at lunch and give the ring and whatever your story is. Things seem great. When your marriage is falling apart and you can't control the other person's heart, you need to know Jesus' care is greater than your chaos. Your job might be going great today. When that company downsizes or that whole industry ceases to exist, Jesus' care is greater than than your chaos. And maybe it won't be one big thing. Maybe it'll be a whole bunch of little things that happen in your life and eventually just feel like, I can't take this anymore. It's too much. And it's pushing you over the edge. Jesus' care is greater than your chaos. Here's the disciples. They just heard Jesus teaching. They left everything to follow him. They're in this boat with Jesus. They're all in. They look over. He's asleep. Don't you care? What do you think's going on in their hearts? I've read a quote by Adoniram Judson. He's the first missionary, foreign missionary, from America and struggled with deep depression. And at one point, not long after his daughter had died, daughter Maria had died, which was months after his wife had died, his wife was struggling with illness, and he had the guilt of not being able to be with her during her illness, he said this, God, to me, is the great unknown. This is a missionary. God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him. I'll paraphrase it. But I can't find him. Where are you? In the storm, it's like you're not even there. That's what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. They think they're, this is such a bad storm that professional fishermen that have been in storms before think they're going to die. They've forgotten the promise. We're going to the other side because oftentimes we forget the promises in the midst of the storm. And they look up and they see that all they're thinking about is their circumstances and Jesus is asleep and they ask the question, don't you care? Which shows they don't understand who he is. That's the question they ask in verse 41. Who is this? They still don't know. They don't know the answer now, back in verse 38. They don't know the answer in verse 41. Mark has told us as the readers in Mark 1.1, this is the son of God who came to take away your sins. If they understood that, they wouldn't be asking this question. Because the very fact that he's present in their boat demonstrates that he cares for them. His presence is testimony to the fact that he cares. Because let me tell you something, when you're the Son of God, a boat in a storm is not the best place to take a nap. He left the best place heaven, where there's no crime. There's no crying. There aren't any hurricanes. There's no natural disasters. There's no rape. There's no child abuse. There's no divorce. There's no tears. Jesus was looking for a place to take a nap. I think he'd be better off there. But instead, he's in this boat. Do you know why he's in the boat? He's in the boat because he's on pursuit of these very men. He tells us in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he came to seek and save that which was lost. He's coming after lost things. He's coming after you. He's coming after them. The very fact that he's present in this boat is a demonstration that God has put on flesh. Who is this that can come? He's doing something only God can do that commands the wind and the waves. He's God. He's God in the flesh in their boat on pursuit of them because that is the only way by him going to the cross that they will ever be reconciled to the Father. It's the only way for you and for me too. If we question his care for us, all we have to do is look at his pursuit of us. And what he does is he keeps coming after us and we sin and he keeps coming and he's patient, he's kind, and he's gentle and we run and we commit spiritual adultery on him and we go after false saviors and we do all kinds of sin and rebellion and it's not just we messed up and we made a mistake and told a white lie. No, we are doing our own thing and we're going our own way and then he keeps coming after us and that's what he's doing with these men. The very fact that he's in their boat is a demonstration of his care because it's a picture of his pursuit. I was talking with one of our elders the other day after one of our elder meetings, J.D. Henserling. Some of you know J.D. uh, He leads, uh, he's led the majority of our trips actually to Madagascar. We've got some missionaries in Madagascar, Africa that have planted at least 10 churches there. It might be 14 churches, but it's more than 10 churches there, Grant and Jody Waller. And uh, we send missionaries from our body, short-term missionaries on a a regular basis to encourage them. I mean, they're out there on their own talking to people they've never met before and speak different languages. And they got to learn the various parts of their dialect and And JD is one of the leaders that goes out there on a regular basis, and they'll go into these places. Sometimes it's where they've started churches. Sometimes it's places that don't have churches yet and different tribes that don't even know about Jesus. And he's sharing that literally with people who have never heard about Jesus. It's hard to believe in the South, isn't it? They've never even heard the name. And they're telling stories. And he said the stories that they really resonate with are stories when... God's in pursuit, or there's some story of pursuit. And so he said that it's like the, when Jesus tells the parable in Luke chapter 15 of the shepherd is with the sheep, but then he goes after the one sheep that gets lost and leaves the other 99. They get it because they've had cattle stolen. They've had sheep that have left before. And, and he said, and you tell stories like Hosea, and I don't know if you know Hosea or not, but Hosea the prophet. God tells Hosea the prophet, I want you to marry an adulterous woman. And, and when she goes off to be with someone else, I want you to go get her and rescue her back, and I want you to buy her back, and I want you to be there for her. And when she's all used up and all worn out by all these other men, you keep loving her and going after her because that's what I do with my people. And as my prophet who's going to speak to my people, I want you to know my heart. It's a story of pursuit. J.D. said the last time they were there, they were out at this one village telling one of those stories. And one of the elders of the village stands up and says, we get it. You're saying that God's coming after us. Exactly. He's pers- his pursuit is a picture of his care. Some of you might remember uh, the week after Easter when I was preaching the, the passage that underlies this one in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. I told the story of what ended up happening to us the day after Easter where my daughter was abducted from our front yard. Some guy came running, and grabbed my daughter. My oldest daughter comes running. It was our youngest daughter that got grabbed. My oldest daughter comes running in the house. Grace, some man just took Gracie. Some man just took Gracie. And I ran out of the house. And I just start running. My neighbor points and says that he went towards the woods, and so I go running out into the woods. We get our daughter back. She's physically was unharmed in that situation. By God's grace. A few days later, one of my friends told me, when I heard you sharing that story, I couldn't help but think of God pursuing us, our Father coming after us, when I thought about you out in the woods. And then a day or so after that, um, one of my daughters, not the one that was taken, but one that was very shaken up by what had happened, was just the two of us, and she said, Dad, if we didn't get Gracie back, would you still be looking? Now, parents, think about that question for a minute. What would you say to your kids, and why are they asking that question? It's not just because she wants to know whether I'm going to go looking for Gracie. She wants to know if it were her, if I'd still be looking for her. Underlying that question is, do you care? And so parents, if you got asked that question by one of your kids, what would you say? Of course you would say yes. so I looked back at her in the eye and I said, if there was even a thought that it might be possible that she's still out there, we would never stop looking because of care. See, Jesus is coming after you. He's pursuing you, and he's relentless. He will not stop. In fact, he'd do it to the point of going to the cross even though he had never sinned, and taking your sin upon himself in pursuit of you. So you want to know if he cares? He's coming after you. And so I don't know if they grab a hold of Jesus' shoulders in the boat or how they actually wake him up. In this moment, they wake him up and say, don't you care? We're going to die. He doesn't say you're not going to die. I promised you we were going to the other side. Look at what he does. Look at verse 39. Verse 39. He got up so patient. He said, I'm sleeping here. You guys got this, all right? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, shh, be still. The wind died down, and it was completely calm. Not like in 30 minutes, it stopped. Do you know what happened here? These guys saw something in this moment they couldn't have seen had they not been in the storm. You see what they say in verse 41. Who is this guy? Even the wind, even our greatest fear, our greatest enemy obeys him. They wouldn't have known that had they not gone through the storm. Had they decided just to stay on the shore. They say, teach one more sermon, Jesus. I think it's interesting that Jesus is showing us here. He's teaching them something that not even he, not even hearing a sermon from Jesus. A sermon can't teach you what's happening in the storm. You have to actually go through the storm. And so while none of us like the storm, that's why the Bible says, rejoice in your trials. That sounds stupid. Like, who's, rejo- who's excited when bad stuff? I got in a car accident today. This is awesome. God must be working. <laughs> no one talks like that. But when you look at it, how many things can you look at? Those of you who have experienced real pain, how many things can you look back at and be like, I'm so thankful for that? Because there's a richness in your faith. Because what happens is God grows our faith in those moments in ways that... He can't do it in another place. The storms are some of the greatest curriculum that life offers. And so, moms, when you're in the storm, know that God's at work and He's working on your heart. He's not just trying to fix your circumstances. He has no problem with the circumstances here, by the way. Be quiet, wind. We've done enough. Be quiet, waves. And who's empowering the wind and the waves? It's Satan. That's why He's using language that He uses to rebuke de- demons when He rebukes the wind and the waves. He's even got control over that. He's got control over all this stuff but even allows the bad stuff in our lives to work for our good to grow our faith. That's why it says in Job, I don't know if you've read Job or not, but Job doesn't lose one kid or two kids. He loses ten kids. Job doesn't have one business fail. Read Job chapter one. Multiple businesses fail. His wife tells him, you should curse God so that then he'd kill you and you'd die. So some marital difficulties there. His health goes away. And Job chapter 42, it's important that you know it's Job chapter 42. Not Job chapter 4, not Job chapter 2, not Job chapter 1. In chapter 1, Job loves God. But look at what he says after the storm. Job chapter 42, my, ar- my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I know you now in a way that I couldn't have known you before. But if you read Job chapter 1, Satan's trying to destroy him. You have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. But you have a Savior that is stronger. Jesus is stronger than the storms of your life. The circumstances are not a problem. What's going on in your heart? That's the question. What does Job say happens next in verse 6? Therefore, I despise myself. He's a pretty incredible guy. Read Job chapter 1. He'd accomplished a lot of stuff. He loves God. He could brag in his righteousness. He could brag about all of his accomplishments. He's got some wonderful kids. He's got a great family. He's very wealthy. What does he say after he gets to know God through the storms? I'm nothing. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes because I've seen how great God is. And when I see who he is, there's no room for pride. What's he doing? Here's Peter, Peter's in the, he's probably the one that tells Mark about this whole account. He's one of the people that's saying, "Master, Lord, teacher, don't you care?" But then years later, after he's been pastoring various churches, in 1 Peter chapter 1, a more mature Peter says this. In this, oh and by the way, these are people that are getting their heads cut off for their faith. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. Verse 7, these have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Saying, Rejoice, welcome trials into your life. How can you say that? Oh, because I've been through the storms. And Paul says similar things, shipwrecked four times. Read about him in Acts chapter 27. He's got a peace in the storm. How do you have that? Because he's been through other storms. Because you learn something. They thought when the boats took off, the lesson was over. When the boats took off, that's when the lesson began. Because that's when they were going to learn something you can't learn just by hearing a sermon. It doesn't matter who, even if Jesus is the one preaching it. You've got to go live this stuff out. That's when your faith becomes real. And that's why Jesus says to him what he says next. Because Jesus is not only, his care is not only greater than our chaos, his power is greater than our greatest fears. Jesus' power is greater than our greatest fears. You look at what happens next in this passage. Jesus says to them after he calms the ship, be quiet, wind, be quiet, waves. He said to his disciples, verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why do faith and fear go together? Why is he saying this? And what are they afraid of? The wind's done. The waves are done. Look at verse 41. They were terrified." and they asked each other. They don't ask him. Do you know what they're terrified of? Jesus. Who's this guy in our boat that has power over the greatest enemy in, our, in all of humankind, the wind and the waves? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Why, why is Jesus? Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't, he, think about what you might've done if you were Jesus. Be quiet wind, be quiet waves, glassy smooth, no wind. Did you see what I just did? <laughs> like I think that's what I might do. That was awesome. That's better than a deer tearing a car apart. That's awesome. Tommy boy reference for those of you who are in the nineties. Jesus doesn't say, look how I have control. This is you know this story is not about wind and waves. It's not just about him having power over nature. Of course he has power over nature. He's the creator. What Jesus does in this very moment is he's, I've taken care of the circumstances. Now I'm going after your heart. Why are you so afraid? He wants to know your fear because you know what happens in your fear is it exposes the weakness of your faith. You still have no faith. Why does he put faith and fear together? Because fear is a symptom of a lack of faith. And so the question for us is what are you afraid of? What is your greatest fear? What is the fear that holds you back from stepping out by faith? We have lots of fears, and we live in a world that's broken world, that's messed up, there's all kinds of stuff out there that's dangerous, and and we're vulnerable, more vulnerable than we realize, and and so there's lots of fears. And so some of us have a fear of failure. Some of us have a fear of being exposed. Some of us have sin in our lives. We don't want people to know. So we have a fear of being found out. Some of us have a fear of losing security. Some of us have a fear that we're going to lose money. Some of us have a fear of losing safety. And so then when God commands certain things, of course you can't obey. If God commands you to be generous with your money, but your greatest fear is losing your money because you think that offers some security, of course you now he's got, now we see a weakness in your faith. If your greatest fear is that your sin is gonna be found out and then, you know, the pastor gets up in front and says, hey, we need to have real relationships and be vulnerable, of course you can't do that. Because your greatest fear, it shows a weakness of your faith. It's not that fear halts faith, it's that fear is a symptom that shows you the weaknesses of your faith. And so Jesus lets these men go through this storm so then he can, you could, they could have left that and been like, hey, we got the extra explanation of the parables. We know it better than the rest of the crowd. They could have thought they had it down. What he's showing them is, let me show you where your faith is still weak because if you don't understand what I'm doing in this boat, you're certainly not going to understand what I'm on a cross. He's growing them. This isn't the only storm they go through in the Gospels, by the way, either. What happens with Peter? Peter gets out of the boat. It's Matthew chapter 14, by the way. He gets out of the boat and he starts walking on water. The only human that's ever walked on water. He's walking on water, but then he starts looking at the wind. He starts looking. You're focused on the circumstances and he starts to sink. Showing him again another weakness in his faith. These storm lessons are to grow our faith. But once you've been through some storms, you know what happens? Your faith gets stronger. And so you can look back at the past storms and realize God came through then because here's what God always does in the storms. Either he delivers you from the storms, like he does here in this passage, or he delivers you through the storm. Maybe he doesn't stop the circumstances, but you actually survive. And even if you die here, you get to go be with him. Talk about deliverance. And in the process, and it's the process that's important. It's the process. Remember he said we're going to the other side. This story's not even about getting to the other side. The destination's not the issue. It's what's happening in the process. In the process, he's growing your faith. He's exposing your fears so that he can then show you the weakness in your faith. And when you see him come through, you know what happens? You grow in your trust. And so you step out in those areas of fear. And then he comes through and he shows, I'm stronger than that. I'm stronger than your greatest fear. I'm stronger than the storms in your life. I'm stronger than those. You can trust me. It's like David in 1 Samuel, I don't know if you remember that story, but in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David's going to fight a giant. And he's going to step out and fight the giant because no one else will because everyone's too afraid. And he gets in a conversation with King Saul. King Saul is probably the guy that should be fighting the giant. He's supposed to be the leader uh, of all the Israelites. And then he's talking to Saul, and you see Saul's fear. Saul says to David, you can't go fight this giant. He's a warrior. He's been a warrior since he was a child. You're just a boy. Do you know what David does? David says, but I've seen God come through. When, when I was a shepherd and a bear came and stole one of the sheep, I chased the bear down and killed it with my slingshot. And God showed up. And when a lion came, I did that too. And so then he says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So God was there with the lion, and God was there with the bear in my past and the other storms I've gone through. Those other times when I've had to trust him. So I'm trusting that when I step out against this giant, he's going to show up again because he's stronger than the giant, and he's stronger than the bear, and he's stronger than the lion, the storms that David's experienced in his life. You know what? He's stronger than the storms in your life, too. So what are your fears? What are you afraid of? We all have them. None of our faith has been made perfect. And so what are your fears? And you see what happens here with these disciples. I don't know how much their faith has grown since verse 38 to verse 41, but something's happening in verse 41. In verse 41, they say they were terrified. They asked each other, too afraid of Jesus to even ask Jesus, who is this? That's the question of this section of our series. It's The answer's in verse 1 to make it real clear for the reader and Mark. Who is this? Remember who Mark's writing to. He's writing to Christians in Rome that are being persecuted. That Nero's going to burn the city down and he's going to send them through the streets. He's going to kill Christians in the streets. And he's saying, don't be focused on the circumstances. Don't forget who is in the boat. And he's in your life. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Our greatest fear, our greatest enemy obeys him. Are they ready to surrender everything to him? We don't know. We don't know what's happening in their hearts. Do they realize that he's the son of God that's come to take away their sins? Probably not in this moment. But there's some level of victory just by the fact that they declare the truth that he's stronger than the storms. He's stronger than their greatest fear. He's stronger than their greatest enemy. Even the wind and the waves obey him. And for you today, what's your greatest fear? Do you know that Jesus' power is greater than your greatest fear? Some of you are in the chaos. Do you know that his care is greater than the worst chaos you could possibly experience? Some of you aren't in the storms today, and some of you aren't going to be in the storms tomorrow, but it's going to happen. It's going to be, there's no such thing as a life where it doesn't happen. And so you need to know that Jesus is stronger than the storm, and some of you need to declare that today. So what we're going to do today for application of today's message is a to praise Jesus in a way for some of you to step out as a a step of faith, is we're going to declare that. And so we've got a board uh, that we've made that's going to get wheeled out over here in just a moment when the worship team comes. They're going to sing a song about Jesus being stronger. Some of you may need to just reflect on some of the lyrics of the song that's being sung. Uh, Some of you may need to sit in your seat and, and ask yourself the question, do I really believe that Jesus is stronger? Or do I think that whatever security I can build up in my life or whatever false savior they're going after, you think that if you think that's better, then, then live the, go, go to the hilt with that. Be an atheist. But if Jesus is really stronger, he is the creator, he is the son of God who came to take away your sins. He is stronger than any storm in your life. He's greater than the chaos that can come. He is stronger than your greatest fear. Then I want to challenge you to declare that today. Maybe you declare it through words as we sing the song or maybe you come up here and you can write. You can write on this board in your own words. And for some of you, uh, writing the words on the board, you might not be whole, all the way there yet in your heart. But declaring it out loud, kind of like the disciples in verse 41, that's a step towards victory for you. You know it in your head. You know that Jesus can overcome miscarriages and divorces and adultery and cancer and difficult circumstances with your kids. You know that he can, but you're struggling with trusting him in it. Then writing that on this board might be a declaration of that for you. Some of you, you've seen Jesus overcome storms in your past, and you might want to praise him for that. And so we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'll begin this in a time of prayer, and uh, the worship team's going to sing a song. The words are going to be up here on the screen. As you feel led, you can come up here. There's some chalk on the sides of this. Uh, You see Dale's even writing over here on the side already. There's uh, room on the sides. There's room on the front. If you'd like to, to praise Jesus for being stronger than the storms in your life. So we'll stand together, and I'll pray. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. Thank you for being God in the flesh, fully human and fully God, able to stop any circumstance in our life at any moment, but so gracious and so caring and a love that's so superior to even our understanding that you allow us to go through the storms so that we can grow in our faith. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and friends and family members that are here in this church that they'd be able to praise you for being stronger, stronger than any storm that could come in their lives. I pray for those that are struggling with their faith, that you give them a step of victory today. I pray for those who don't have faith, that don't know you, that right now you would make them miserable to the point, if they have to go through a storm, it'd be better for them to go through a storm here on this earth than to die and spend eternity separated from you. Bring them into a saving relationship with you today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.